Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. Metros are an essential part of city life around the world. However, the underground rail networks of Ukraine have a unique history and cultural significance. In this week's episode, we dive into the past of Ukraine's four metro networks and explore how they have changed since Ukraine's independence. This and more on Sakhradonyu Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. Metro travel in Ukraine is our topic for this week's episode. Um, so, it's a bit of a weird topic, but we're going to explain to you guys why it's actually a quite interesting and uh, historical uh, topic. So, I thought we'd start by clarifying what exactly a metro system is. And it's a mass rapid transit system that is capable of high capacity public transport. Uh, these are normally electrical systems that can't be accessed by pedestrians or other vehicles, so they're normally located underground, or if you want to get to them, you've got to get through, you know, the little barricades or whatever to kind of, yeah, make sure you've paid. So, why Ukraina's metro system? The interesting thing about this uh, these systems isn't that their history is you know, in the Soviet past, but also in more recent times, they've actually gone through a number of different upgrades uh, in recent years. So, Ukraina has technically four metro systems. It has one in Kiev, one in Kharkiv, one in Dnipro, and one in Krevirich, which is kind of a metro system, but kind of not, um, which we'll explain a little bit uh, later as well. So, when looking at this interesting um, history, um, and as I mentioned, they were from the Soviet era. Uh, Kiev's metro opened in 1960. Kharkiv's metro opened in 1975. Krevirich opened in 1986. And Dnipro began its construction in 1981, but it was officially opened in 1995 after the fall of the Soviet Union. And these metros have served as kind of like a time capsule, not just for the Soviet planning and architecture, but also for various cultural aspects, which is what we're going to explore specifically in uh, this week's episode. So, Andrei, what can you tell us about the first one, uh, Kiev's Metro? So, Kiev's Metro is actually the oldest in Ukraine, and it was the third built during the Soviet Union after Moscow and St. Petersburg. Now, it contains three lines with a total length of over 65 kilometers, and it actually contains the deepest station in the world, Arsenalna, which is 105 and a half meters below ground. Funnily enough, it's only because it's that deep because it's in the middle of a hill. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that that station, I think there's a Dnipro station, and straight after that, it's actually where the Metro goes from underground to above ground to cross the Dnipro River. Yeah. So it is quite funny that the deeper station actually makes way for... To ground outside, level. To ground level. Yeah, and... Um, Isn't the stereotype of Arsenalna station that you can fit the Statue of Liberty and you've still got room? Between the station and the surface. Yeah, it's isn't it like only 75 metres, the statue? It's 95. 95, there you go. And I think the other thing that's, that's crazy, for those who haven't been to Kiev or haven't been on the metro um, in Kiev, that particular station, uh, just to think about it, takes almost five minutes um, on the escalator. Two There's two escalators, yeah, to get from the bottom to the top or the top to the bottom. So. And like I know like when I went there, you stand at the bottom of the escalator and you look up, you can't even see the top of the, es- like the, top of the tunnel of the escalator. And that's only halfway. That's only halfway because the second elevator goes right. 
and so it yeah, keeps like going this, up. Like random floor in the middle of this hill. <laughs> There's nothing to do. The cave metro wasn't actually planned during the Soviet Union. It was actually planned before that in 1884, which was the first uh, planning stage. And it was only meant to be uh, one line at that time, but um, there was disagreement on how it would be run, where it would go. So obviously that first one fell through without construction. So you're saying that they wanted to build this metro in Kiev in 1884. That would make it, if they succeeded back then, like one of the almost as old as the London Underground. Yeah, it's, it's quite an achievement it would have been to have the second oldest uh, metro at that time. Um, so the London, for those of you that don't know, the London Underground was opened in January of 1863. It's sort of only been 20 years since the first metro system in the world ever was open. So after that first unsuccessful attempt, um, during Hetmanskina in Ukraine, Hetmanskorapatska was very interested in building a system that would be near the government center where it was to be planned. He argued that the engineers had an idea to construct trams, but not the ones that you write now, those underground and those in tunnels that are called metropolitan or underground. The soil of Zvirenets and Kev as a whole, where the underground is to be built, is the best for the kind of construction. Under these circumstances, the underground may be even better placed than the one in Paris, as Cave is situated on the hills and ravines, so the underground would appear from the hill into the ravine, then again passing through the mountain. So that didn't last long, as Hetmashtina fell in autumn of 1918, and the next Ukrainian government uh, wasn't really in support of this, and soon after the Russian Civil War pulled Ukraine into that, and so there was no involvement from uh, that government, forcing it to be postponed again. Now, third time, uh, in 1936, there was another proposal to build uh, a metro. This would have been the first um, to start off, and it actually would have, I think, come close to actually being built. But obviously, World War One, uh, obviously World War Two came along and that postponed the whole transport again to a later date. Now, finally, we get closer to, like Nathan said, 1960s. So around 1950s was when they had started planning and for construction to begin. And today, when we look at the Kiev Metro, we know that there are 52 stations uh, and the entire three and three lines um, with a total length of 67.56 kilometers. Um, the big thing to think about for those who aren't aware is that this system carries roughly 1.3 million passengers daily. Um, and it accounts for a huge ratio of Kiev's public transport load as 46.7%, um, which really, when you think about um, other cities, to have such a um, dominant part of the public transport be a single transport system. It just shows you how critical and crucial it is to Kiev and also how um, how embedded it is as part of Kiev's culture and history. Uh, and then the other thing I think is quite interesting to think through is just the varied designs of the Kiev metro. So uh, the, the architecture within the stations of the Kiev metro have been expressive of very different periods in Ukraine's history uh, and they've also been expressive of different political agendas when it's come through in terms of the Soviet Union and beyond. Um, and, and that doesn't always necessarily mean that Stalinist design is dominating through the entire Soviet Union period that Ukraine was 
in the, within the Soviet Union. It actually includes times when there was a promotion of Ukrainization and providing things like Kiev and Rus um, in stations like Zolotivarota. Um, so I guess, guys, you want to talk a little bit about some of those station designs? Yeah, and I think we should start off with Zolotivarota. It's like the most... Beautiful, in my opinion. Yeah, beautiful, iconic metro station in the world. So, like, when you get off the metro, you walk in and you're almost transported to, like, medieval times because the station's got mosaics everywhere. And, like, you're walking through. And it's like, if they'd built metros in Byzantium, this is probably what it would have looked like on the station. And it's interesting because we've talked about Kiev and Rus quite a bit. Uh, through the podcast at different times and different episodes. And this was ultimately an expression of, of that kind of uh, history of Kiev and Kiev and Rus and obviously the Zolotivarato Golden Gates of Kiev that are not far away geographically from the station itself. Oh, yeah. Like if you walk out from one of the exits, you walk out right underneath the gates. That's pretty cool. Um, probably the next most iconic station would be... Um, what Universitat station? Because you walk out, you've got the bust of like famous Ukrainian professors and all that built into it. My Dun Nezalazhnosti station's iconic, but that's a bit more plain. Well, it's funny because you don't have a consistent theme for all the stations. You have like 60s style, 70s style, and then like 2000s. So there's quite a different variety of designs across the whole metro system. There generally tends to be a bit of marble. Yeah, there's a lot, of, yeah. a lot of marble and <laughs> but granite, yes, which I is agree. Not something you associate with public transport <laughs> outside of the Soviet Union. Yeah, and I think that's a really important observation, Alexa, um, that this is this was a huge part of nation building and propaganda um, in terms of the Soviet Union building these very vast, these very, um, I guess, uh, very ornate. Uh, stations and metros, um, not only in Ukraine but in other countries as well. And interestingly enough, we can we can even see um, in some of the some places like North Korea a very arguably a very very small metro network, if one that's realistically working at all. But again, it's used very much for that projection of power and sophistication and and technology for a state to say that they can provide these sort of infra- this sort of infrastructure to their, to their people. And, I mean, arguably, even here in Sydney, um, I know many people that have travelled to Ukraine and said, well, I wish we had a public transport system like this thing, despite the fact that it was, you know, 50, 60 years old at the time and or now and, and that it was, you know, also a lot cheaper to run on than anything we would imagine here. So to show you how efficient Kiev Metro is, on, Metro, on the Metro 1 line, which is the red one and the oldest part of the line, the train during rush hour there, the longest you have to wait between trains is a minute 45 to two minutes during rush hour. And then a normal wait time and on weekends, guess how long you have to wait between trains on this part of the network? Two minutes. A little bit longer. You have to wait three and a half minutes uh, on a weekend or normal off-peak time. Unacceptable. Like, that is my day's ruined. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? That is like rush hour in Sydney is like three minutes, if that, between trains. Yeah, true. Um, the longest wait you'll ever have to wait on the Cave Metro is on the Metro Line Three, which on a weekend you might have to wait six minutes between Metro trains. It's almost like the one, like the train system in Japan, but. In um, that you have such a short time, yes, to wait in between uh, between trains. Yeah. yeah, between trains, but it's not 
like up to speed in terms of like they just print out a map with all the times in between and not have like a timetable in a sense. What I love in Cave is that you just have the timer above the like when you walk into the station on one end, like on the tunnel where the train's going, there's just a timer and it's just counting up. And so when you walk in, you're like, all right, it's been like a minute and a half. There'll be one soon. So kind of like what we have in Sydney, the orange clocks that tell you the time and like, you know, it's going to leave at this particular time. It's like that, but it's more about instead of counting down to the train, it's counting up. I'm pretty sure it counts down. Like our ones will say like you have the time and then it will say like two minutes minutes until the next train. Yeah, so they'll have the uh, what they'll have is they'll have the time and then they'll have time since the last oh, track. Okay. Gotcha. So then you can work out in your head. Like there should be one soon, which I think takes us to a few other fun facts. So how expensive do you think K of Metro is? It's not too expensive, from what I remember having taken it have before. A guess, Nathan, in revenue. How much Good. one ticket on the cave metro? Okay, hold on. I don't know how much the Sydney metro is. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me get my. Uh, how much is one revenue worth in dollars? It's like five, five cents. Australian cents. Five cents. Five Australian cents is one revenue. Okay, so if I want to get a drink in Ukraine, like a energy drink, how much would that be roughly? I don't know. It'd be like thirty to fifty. Okay, eight okay. cents. Or Heaven. Head Heaven, yeah. Okay, yeah okay. I'm pretty head sure Heaven. Red Bull's like 30 Head Heaven. Okay, okay, so... <clears throat> oh, is it like 200 Head Heaven? Not even close, man. Damn. Try eight. <laughs> eight Head Heaven, and you can go wherever you want on the network. It's 30 cents US to what? travel the whole metro system. I was thinking like 10 bucks or something. No, no. Man. It is okay. one of the cheapest public transport networks in the world, and even like... Like, during the Soviet Union, it was five cents to ride the metro, but because money doesn't really translate well to communism. Um, oh, yeah. At that, the most expensive it's ever been was uh, 20,000 karbovans, which was um, roughly like 10 cents, 10, mm-hmm. 11 cents. During Ukraine's hyperinflation period. Yeah, so in 1996. So, is it like, it's still a government-run Program yes. today. So, K- all the metro networks in Ukraine are of strategic importance, but Kiev Metro is run its own directly by the Ministry of Infrastructure in Ukraine. Okay. Hmm. How highly placed it is. And it's constantly being updated in terms of length. Like, from 1960, it used to be only a couple stops, I think it was six, and now it's gone to over 32 stations in what, almost 60 years. Well, 60 years since then. Yeah, and so even though the metro is um, super cheap now and um, you can now pay with contactless on it, so they've, you know, moved quite forward and it's died away, but it was like you used to have these iconic metro tokens that you could buy and you could, like, slot it in. Hmm. And um, I always wanted to keep one, but then you could never <laughs> actually get into the metro if you didn't, yeah. if you didn't put it in. <laughs> I reckon you could find a guy who sells them, like, on the I street. I reckon you just, legit, all you do is just pay Buy for it. the t- ticket and then and just and leave. Not go on. <laughs> that works as well. I'm going to do that next time I go. But too bad you can't buy them anymore. I, I reckon I can go to one metro station. Black market, I'm telling you, there's going to be some guy. <laughs> so another really fascinating feature of um, this metro and, and arguably all the Soviet uh, major metros uh, at the time, they were designed with um, some unique 
dual purposing. Uh, not only were they obviously very efficient means of transport and uh, ability and opportunity for, uh, I guess, the Soviet Union to show their superior engineering and technical skills and artistic skills, arguably as well. They also were designed, uh, as I mentioned earlier, with the three-line theory, and there was what they called the Soviet triangle design of metros. And the idea there is if you look at an overview map of the metro of Kiev, there's actually a point where they intersect in the center of the city where it creates a triangle. And it's it's been, uh, I guess, documented, though sometimes only very briefly documented, um, and you can see some examples in other metros of areas that show this, but basically... The, they were designed to also work as bomber shelters or nuclear fallout shelters uh, during the Cold War. Um, and there was the ability in a lot of these stations to be able to house people within the station or the tunnels and seal off the tunnels and stations. We talked about the deepest station in the world just before and that he mentioned, which is 105 metres down, which is Asnaina, which also happens to be where the, um, I guess, artillery factories and I guess... That oh, yeah, kind the of, old artillery yeah, the factories. old artillery factories used to be, but... Um, but that, that particular station and obviously a few others deep inside of uh, those deep underground stations were designed. Um, and there is the rumors that go that there were also areas that were off limits from the public that were actually outfitted um, with survival gear, rations and things like that. Uh, more recently, there's been a few urban explorers that have found within the network um, different areas that have, uh, I guess, bun- unfinished bunkers or bunkers that have been left in disrepair for a very long time. Um, and then in a similar example, I guess, there is also in Moscow a bunker of similar design um, that's actually now a tourist attraction and well, restaurant. the rumour that Moscow has the secret metro line. Well, the metro too. Yeah, yes. that no one knows about. Which actually links all the Kremlin, uh, Lubyanka prison and things like that together and goes all the way out to like a military airfield. So I think there was some quite ingenious design geopoly. And obviously, if you go to Asenaina, there is heavy, heavy bomb doors at the, at the vestibule at the top, which look quite thick. Um, <laughs> and I think rumor has, I think, I haven't seen it myself, but there is YouTube video footage of these closing that you can find. Um, they definitely look like pretty much a nuclear fallout shelter you'd see in any movie. So, um, and, and it was suggested that these were actually for the general public to be able to bunker down during a bombing or an air raid or obviously a nuclear attack. So from that perspective, it was quite a designed as a benevolent, uh, at least a, a part of these areas was designed for public access, however practical or however survivable that would actually be. The other microcosm that the Metro acts in a, in a, as an interesting window into Ukraine's history is language policy. So when they were building the Metro, obviously all the engineers came from Russia because they just built the Moscow and Leningrad or St. Petersburg metros. So when you look at all the archival documents, they're all written in Russian, but then the stations themselves had Ukrainian signage. And wasn't that because there was a sort of period of policy where there was a bit of Ukrainization going on in the Ukrainian SSR? Yes. So the, uh, when, like the 1960s saw a limited wave of Ukrainianization again, but What's interesting is, is that even though they had Ukrainianization going on to an extent, they Russianized the names. So, for example, Maidan Nezalazhnosti used to be called Zhotnava Revolutia, so the October Revolution, which was, you know, the Soviet Union's arguably most important holiday. But they, the way they named it, um, 
was Zhovnavaya and put the Russian ending of how they would say October. So the Vidminok was Russian. Yeah, which was like, why would you like officially put Surzhik as the name of your station? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, it's like so weird that like you would put a Russian grammar spelling onto Ukrainian words, but it kind of, you know, shows that theory that they were trying to show that Ukrainian was just a offshoot of Russian and therefore applying Russian grammar was okay. So then the, um, the next kind of big change that happened to Ukraine's metro in terms of language was during the 1980s when Ukraine's then leader, Shcherbetsky, who was a big promoter of Russification, changed how the languages were announced on the metro. And so he was the one that introduced kind of bilingualism onto the metro system. However, what he would do is Russian would be read out first, followed by Ukrainian. So whilst all the stations retain their Ukrainian names and spellings, you'd hear all the conductors in Russian first before you heard Ukrainian. And this only really changed when perestroika, or like the openness, the opening of Soviet society occurred in the late 80s, early 90s. And at that point, they then changed it to Ukrainian being read out first, followed by Russian. And then once Ukraine gained its independence, Russian was dropped pretty quickly. And just before 2012, they introduced English and put English transliterations of all the station names out. So it was quite, um, I remember the first time I heard it was you'd hear like, you know, the typical Ukrainian, like Nastupnostansia, whatever. And then you'd hear this like Canadian voice reading it in like uh, reading out the, like the next station is. It was quite a surprise when we first heard it. Because, like, you, you just didn't expect Kiev to be so, like, European-friendly. In a sense, like, English-friendly, actually. Yeah. But it's at that time, it's at that point where it has to become more friendly for it to become more tourist-attractive, really. And so, whilst there was language politics, there was also, like, politics with station names. And there's a whole list of stations that were renamed after Ukraine's independence. Yeah, and I think it's suffice to say as well that there was a lot of counter counterbalancing imagery of Soviet propaganda in a lot of stations. And one of the other stations that has also changed names is Teatranna, which was the which is a station that's very close to one of the theaters in Ukraine um, for drama, and that used to be called Leninska. Uh, so. A lot of the uh, artistic reliefs and um, mouldings and other parts, architectural features and design features of the station uh, bore busts of Lenin and other types of, um, I guess, uh, homages to, to Lenin. Um, and some of these actually took some time to be removed and replaced. Um, and probably the, the bust of Lenin uh, kind of at the centre of the station was replaced fairly recently, I believe, uh, with a 3D model of the theatre in question. Um, so... As much as we have maybe positive steps to languages, um, there are also these other steps. But one of the other things I want to bring up, it's not quite language, but I want to come back to the Zoloty Vorota because I think that's another example of this push and pull because for, for uh, originally the plan, design plans for this particular station um, in the 80s was really to keep it very clean and utilitarian, very much with the modern Soviet aesthetic, if you want to talk about it, I guess in the 80s, um, with stations like Olympiska and others that have that kind of feel. Um, but what ends up, um, what did end up happening was that there was uh, the chief city, the ch- city's chief architect, Mikola Zarikov, um, 
basically was in favor of scrapping that design and really wanted to go all in with what we mentioned earlier, which is the Kievan Rus style. Um, and actually the modeled it as a Kievan Rus temple. Um, so that in itself was a particularly strong thing to do, um, whether from a Ukrainian perspective in terms of Ukrainian culture, but also just from the perspective that it was um, slightly religious in a very secular country or very secular um, part of the world. So I think it's a, it shows you that the architecture was not just by accident or happens. There was a lot of thought that went into how uh, these stations and their architecture expressed, um, I guess, the Kiev's mindset and Ukraine's mindset over the course of the years it's been in operation. Moving on to other metros in Ukraine, Kharkiv was the second city to gain its metro. Now, this metro line is 38.7 kilometers and serves 30 stations. The thing about this, which I find interesting about the Kharkiv metro, is that it's completely underground. Even the bridge connect that goes over the river, it's completely enclosed. You can't even see the city outside. Now, uh, the purpose for it was to prevent heavy snowfall from coming onto the tracks and obviously you'd lose transport going in that direction. And it's actually proven to be quite useful in that when other transport fail, you still have the metro to catch to the city. And also, it's not only the second metro in Ukraine, it's also the sixth in the former like Soviet Union to be built. So it shows you how important Kharkiv was as a city because it was a great honour for a city to be awarded a metro. So the fact that Kharkiv got it is quite um important um the other thing we should mention about Kharkiv metro is that it is probably more forward thinking in terms of technology compared to other like like cave metro so i think they were the first to have full cell phone coverage inside the metro at least with uh cave star which is like the national carrier of ukraine in a sense and they were the first to go contactless which was in the 2010s well k of metro only went contactless at the end of 2019 start of 2020 but that just raises a very good point i mean the fact that you can get cell service in the entire Kiev metro when you're in ukraine or this metro obviously earlier is quite amazing i realize it's just cell towers on the ground but you are 105 <laughs> meters down and yeah. you can use the use the internet which is you know i think for any country is still pretty impressive um the other thing i think that's really um like I guess looking at comparing just the overall um, ridership, uh, it's about probably about half because we're looking at, as we mentioned earlier, the Kiev ridership daily is 1.3 million um, and for the Kharkiv Metro, it's 611,000. Yeah, it shows you how important these systems are. And whilst Kharkiv Metro doesn't have some of the more ornate stations compared to like Kiev, Moscow, St. Petersburg, they do still have their own distinctive style of like that mid 1970s look. And then the other thing that was interesting, and this again returns to language, is Kharkiv Metro originally used to be all in Russian. It was only with Perestroika in the late 1980s when Gorbachev came in that they started to do bilingual announcements of Russian and then Ukrainian. And only in 1993 did they become Ukrainian-only announcements. And then as in Kiev, with um, Ukraine hosting the Euro 2012 Soccer Championships, they introduced English and Latinized all the station names for tourists. One thing I do want to mention is that of all the 
um, stations in Kharkiv Metro. Only one, uh, all but one, are pylon type and have a uh, a ladder arc of column type. It's surprising that they're all the same, unlike in Kiev, where it's it's all just different styles and different um, periods as well. But in Kharkiv, it's all the same, even though it was only built a couple years after Kiev. Yeah, but do you think that's also because I mean the Soviet designs by that point had had well had had quite a few under their belt, right? Like I mean, you had I guess it was the sixth uh, sixth metro to open in the Soviet Union. You know, Kiev was the third, um, and obviously Moscow and 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 Saint Petersburg are both massive metros, bigger than even Kiev. If we talk about big metros, um, so maybe it was just a bit of learning that happened over time to get to more standardised way of doing things and maybe even the experience of the Nipro uh, stations being open in Kiev might have even caused the, the reasoning for closing them on the river in Kharkiv. As what uh, many would consider to be the last actual metro in Ukraine is the Nipro metro. Now <laughs> this one's a really short one with only seven just over seven kilometers and six stations and all of Nipro and Concerning what it was meant to be, having four stations, oh, sorry, having four lines, probably going over, I think even as close as to the one Cave has, which is 60 kilometers, um, it would have been like one of the biggest uh, in Ukraine. Now, the whole reason for this was that there were kind of a bunch of mess ups in terms of just unexpected things happening at the worst time possible for the construction. So on March 15th, 1982, there was a decree for the construction of the Nipro Metro. Now, that was meant to be finished uh, by the 12th five-year plan that, uh, in the Soviet Union. But following the death of Leonid Brezhnev on November 10th, 1982, just that same year, um, there was quite economic hardship within the Soviet Union. So this whole complex of metro lines was postponed further. But the next leader, Gorbachev, when he visited the city, he promised to help finish off the project. But his promise was left unfulfilled as the Soviet Union collapsed soon after him. We should say that because of its smaller size and therefore less usership, the the Dnipro metro is obviously cheaper. It only costs six revin to ride instead of eight as it is in Kharkiv and Kiev, and also the metro trains here only have three carriages, so they're quite small trains in general. And I think they used to have five carriages from memory. Yeah. But obviously what's happened is that what's – and it's interesting because it's probably one of the examples of a – I wouldn't say it's a failed metro, but um, clearly the, the limitation in terms of the lines and where it goes in the city has caused, um, I guess, over time some steady decline. So just as a comparison um, – in 1995, there were 18.2 million passengers annually, and as of 2013, there was only 7.5 million passengers on the on the trains. And interestingly enough, um, the actual uh, daily ridership is estimated at the moment for around 20,000 um, only. Uh, which, as we go through the controversial, not so much a metro metro, um, which is a metro tram in a second, 
actually has 80,000 in the daily ridership. So the tram fake metro seems to outdo in terms of the overall usage of the service. And you can tell that this metro was built in the 90s when Ukraine was cash strapped. Because when you look at the station designs, they're all identical and only distinguished by color and have the same layout of dodgy colored tiles. Yes, but I mean, uh, the multi-billion dollar Sydney metro... Most of the stations look very much the same with similar colours. and A lot of it's outdoors, Alex. So, yeah. I mean, I don't think everyone gilds their uh, their stations with marble. Excuse and- me. Marble's the only way to build public infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, perhaps. There are plans to expand Nipro Metro and actually take the metro to the city centre, which will hopefully increase ridership. And um, so far, these plans haven't been forestalled. So, Kareviri has its own, some call it a metro, some call it a tram, but it's sort of like a mix of both. Where Their logo co- looks like a metro logo. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it pretty much is. It's like the one in Kiev. But uh, what it actually is, is a pre-metro light rail system. Now, the whole design for it was to actually be converted from this to, uh, from a light rail to an actual metro system now this was done to as a test in Krevirich and Volgograd and this is to test whether the construction of a full-scale metro could be avoided by adopting a light rail design for socialist cities now this proved to be a challenge because like most urban cities there was overcrowding and widespread congestion that proved too much for the actual trans system and with the onset of World War II and having it to be rebuilt, um, there's more planning to be considered afterwards. So, in a sense, they've been here quite smart. They've prep like they were prepping for Kreviriv to become a major city, but they were like, it's too small to support a metro, but big enough that it needs rapid transit. So, we'll build a convertible solution, which I don't think many other cities would do. I mean, they try and hold out until they invest in big infrastructure, like we've done in Sydney. Or, you know, if you live in a petro state, then they'll just over-engineer in everything because <laughs> they've got the money to do it. Yeah. But, like, um, from the planning stage, all the stops were called, um, not even stops, they were actually called stations, and they were all separate complexes there, so you couldn't actually get onto the um, onto the trucks and the stations as you normally would with a tram. So they were always planning for it to become a metro. It was just more of a temporary solution to when it was. Yeah, and looking at the stations, they look very metro-esque. Like you've got the like the big wide metro platform and then the tracks I think are the same size as metro tracks would be. So you just put on new rolling stuff and you're good to go. Um, I mean, this reminds me like when we went to Germany in Cologne, they've got oh, a yeah. similar system to this of like rapid segregated light rail yeah but that one uh you could it was more like a tram line instead rather than a metro but it was like similar concept yeah the the interesting thing is about these metros though because obviously we all marveled at the design and the efficiency of these systems but i think even the grand key of metro just looking back one of the things i found really fascinating was that for a lot of major events um in kiev especially in a at the Olympijski Stadion, the Olympic Stadium in Kiev, they actually closed the two metro stations that are closest to 
that complex. It's a bit like Sydney closing Olympic Park Station um, yeah, you know, during grand finals and other big events like the Easter show or, you know, during the Olympic Games not to actually use the two stations closest to the precinct, which I thought was really interesting. And they were talking about how the overcrowding is the problem. And so it made me think a little bit about how these stations have these deep, I guess, you know, caverns and they're obviously all, you know, there's a need to be put positive pressure probably for oxygen and things like that down in these areas and that that might actually adversely affect their utility when it comes to sort of specific scenarios like people moving for large events and things like that. I certainly didn't expect that. Like I always imagined if there was ever a Kiev Olympics that there'd be a metro station there or two that would always be, you know, kind of critical. It would actually be quite easy for Kiev to run an Olympic Games because of the way that metro works. But it was just fascinating to hear. Um, yeah, it was weird. Like when, I, when we went to soccer, like you get off and then it's like a kilometre walk. And you're just like in this horde of people walking to the stadium. And it's just like, there's one right next to it. Yeah. And my, well, there's two right next to yeah. it, effectively. And my understanding is that those, those other stations, the reason they do that is because then people either diverse into doing other activities, not going straight away to the station, or they go to a very, you know, varied amount of stations, whether it's Altivarota and some of the other ones around that, that, that space. But, I still thought it was quite interesting. So I don't know if that actually means that there's there's some inherent problems with the metro, but um, it's just it's just something that was fascinating to hear about. Even though that Kreviris metro tram isn't a fully fledged metro as it was planned to be, its compatibility and low construction costs have shown it to be more superior to the metro in every respect. And unlike the metros in Dnipro and other post-Soviet cities, the metro tram now functions as an important traffic artery, which will be a significant factor in securing funds for future expansions. Now, this will also impact uh, the Mashrutka uh, that we will mention in a later episode. And it's... Uh, Hopefully we can get rid of Mashrutkas in Ukraine and they can invest in some more rapid transport. Yeah. So there you have it. That's a bit of a um, rundown of Ukraina's different metro systems. And if you ever are in Ukraina, definitely uh, check them out and um, give them a try, especially the one in Kiev, given how unique it is as well. In the news this week, Ukraine's Minister of Culture and Information Policy, Oleksandr Kachanko, has announced that the infrastructure of the nation's film industry will be modernized and a rebate system will be introduced. The reforms aim to promote more partnership between Ukrainian producers and Western filmmakers to bring Ukrainian stories to both the big and small screen. The proposed changes will also increase the amount of language dubbing on foreign films, particularly those on streaming services such as Netflix. The Ukrainian World Congress has expelled the Association of Ukrainian Societies in Latvia, the AUSL, due to its anti-Ukrainian stance that contradicts the basic principles and values of the Ukrainian World Congress. The AUSL has been found to be promoting anti-Ukrainian information on various social networks, actions guided by the ideology of the Russian world, spreading misinformation about the war in eastern Ukraine, and slandering the Ukrainian government, which the association alleged is a fascist faction that kills children, statements that discredit the revolution of dignity, promoting the idea of creating a new Russian Republic, and much, much more. This is the first time that the Ukrainian World Congress has expelled a member organization in its history. The Congress will continue to work with its other member organizations in Latvia and support their efforts to create new central Ukrainian representative bodies. 
Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba has slammed Iran's final report on the downing of Ukrainian International Airlines Flight PS752. Iran has failed to take into account Ukraine's remarks and applied manipulation. Iran conducted its investigation into the disaster with numerous violations of the Chicago Convention and ICAO rules. According to Kuleba, Ukraine had earlier sent to Iran more than 90 pages of remarks and proposals to amend the draft final report. However, these were ignored as Iran is attempting to hide the true causes of the crash. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.